Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone in our listening audience. This is Charles Marshall, and we are here today on September 10th, 2020, and I'm happy to report that uh, I have my good friend and confidant, uh, Bill Padalo, on the show with me today. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. Hopefully you're uh, staying away from all the fires down there. (laughs) Fortunately, uh, since I'm close to downtown San Diego, they are well off in the distance and uh, haven't impacted me so far. Good, good. Uh, but thanks, thanks for inquiring. Uh, so on today's show, uh, Bill and I are going to be discussing this, uh, well, kind of a topic threaded within a topic. Uh, we have talked before on this show about uh, credit bids, and we've also talked on this show about the hearsay rule and various aspects to how the hearsay rule works. Uh, I'm also going to be doing some um, updates on the, uh, on the, um, the COVID situation. So, uh, you know, in terms of Bill's piece, it's really going to come down to a discussion about what are called bid tapes. And these bid tapes are being used by a lot of lenders and sometimes servicers. They're claiming to stand in the shoes of lenders on behalf of the securitized trust to try to get around the hearsay rule in legal proceedings. Now this happens in legal proceedings all around the country and where the hearsay rule is essentially circumvented through what amounts to, it's a, you could almost call it a kind of fiction. I mean, there are still courts under the hearsay rule holding or at least trying to hold the so-called party in interest who needs to produce the note to show they have proper standing to either proceed as either a plaintiff or a defendant, like whatever their role is in the case, these institutional players need to show that they have the bona fides to proceed. And you would think that the original note being the goldstone of what they need to prove, that that would be something they would absolutely have to provide. But as listeners to this show uh, know, that's something that often is not available we might even say reasonably is rarely available. I won't get into that level of distinction 
but I think all listeners know whatever side of the fence they're on, that these notes are often not available in litigation or otherwise. So this issue of bid tapes is where the institutional players are basically buying data in a platform type format, which Bill is going to go into. And they're able to essentially get a representation of a note within the data set. And then courts are in some cases, which again, Bill will discuss, allowing these, what we could suppose representations of some kind of the original note, they're being passed off as as valid, as authentic, as in effect, for legal purposes, the original note itself. And this does seem like a great finesse and a great misuse of legal procedure. And oftentimes they're able to get these uh, representations admitted into evidence based on the business records exception to the hearsay rule. Uh, I did want to give a brief kind of primer on the hearsay rule. I think uh, even attorneys, yes, they know what the hearsay rule is. Generally, do they know all the particulars that are relevant? Most of the time they do, not necessarily. And I think for the general public, the litigating public, as much as these rules are understood and as as frequently as they are invoked, there's still a lack of clarity sometimes on exactly what is what. Uh, Federal Rules of Evidence is an excellent resource here uh, because the Federal Rules of Evidence are kind of like the modern, the modern, what are called the model rules uh, of evidence. There's a whole slew of model rules, civil and criminal procedure, and they're typically uh, promulgated by Bar Association Country and there are other kind of affiliated organizations now of a legal nature that sometimes are involved in the updates of these rules. They work with legislative staff of various state legislatures to enhance these rules and the bottom line for for the purpose of this this uh, presentation is that uh, federal evidence federal evidence rules which are found uh, at rule 803 under the federal rules of evidence and just briefly the rule relating to what hearsay means legally in a legal proceeding is at rule 801, federal rules of evidence otherwise known as FRE. Uh, So I will back up briefly just to define briefly what hearsay is. Hearsay is, it's a statement and it's, it's made either orally or in writing it can even be nonverbal conduct if the nonverbal conduct is intended to be an assertion of some kind. Uh, Declarant, of course, is the person making the statement. Uh, hearsay in this legal definition, again, which you will find at Rule 801 FRE, 
two two sections to this. Uh, one, the declarant is not made testifying at the current trial or hearing, or a party offers an evidence to prove the truth of the matter asserted in the statement. So by this definition, essentially, if you're in a legal proceeding, hearsay is a statement made by an individual who witnessed or can testify to what they're describing. In other words, they have direct knowledge. They observed it somehow, the thing they're talking about. And they're available at trial. It doesn't mean you're at trial then, but they're available at trial to testify. Now, depositions involve you being under oath. And if you're in legal a legal proceeding where you're under oath, Generally, that's going to be the kind of statement which can get around the hearsay rule. In other words, it's not hearsay if you're under oath and you're testifying something that you specifically observed of which you have specific knowledge. Um, so there are some further complications to what is not hearsay, which you'll see at Rule 801 and by the way, everything I'm talking about here, including the variations, including the exceptions, uh, this is all evidentiary law throughout the various, all jurisdictions, uh, including overwhelmingly uh, places like Guam that are outside the 50 states, where American ju jurisprudence prevails as the legal system in those jurisdictions. So you will see these laws largely, even in some cases, overwhelmingly mirrored these specific rules down to their details in the various legislatures around the country and even overseas if they're operating under American jurisprudence. Uh, so some of the statements that are not hearsay under Rule 801, uh, if a declarant testifies and is subject to cross-examination about a prior statement, and the statement is inconsistent with the declarant's testimony and was given under penalty of perjury at a trial, hearing, or other proceeding, or in a deposition. What that means is if somebody's cross-examining, let's say an attorney's cross-examining witness at trial, that attorney can bring in other statements that were made under oath to quote unquote in what the declarant is saying in that trial. And the fact that the evidence they're trying to bring is impeaching the evidence at trial is the reason that that's let in. I know that's a little uh, complicated the way I, I said that. Uh, normally, I try to get into the details, but again, because of our time constraints, uh, I need to move on. So there, there's some other um, related types of statements that can be brought in uh, under the definition of hearsay, meaning it's simply not hearsay, and that would be the statement is offered against an opposing party, and, and then there are five 
separate conditions mentioned A through E. Um, I'm not going to get into all of those because of time constraints. For purposes of today's show, uh, the, the hearsay exceptions that can be found at uh, FR 803, what I think it's important for, for listeners to take away there is that one of the most important exceptions uh, for our purposes today is FRE 803 subsection 6. And subsection 6 is the business records exception. And Bill will be talking about that. Now, that's not the only way that hearsay can be said to be uh, otherwise admissible. I mean, there are literally dozens of exceptions to the hearsay rule, and so that makes it complex terrain. It also makes it terrain that can be uh, continually mined, so to speak, uh, to come up with different analyses on how you get something at the trial that otherwise won't come in. Uh, but essentially, the business records exception that you'll find at six. Um, it's where there's a record of an act, event, condition, opinion, or diagnosis. If the record was made at or near a time um, where the information was transmitted. I mean, on that basis alone, all the robo-signing that goes on should be stricken from the record. Since the robo-signing is, is always referring to an event that's happened sometimes months previously, even at times years, and typically weeks or months, it's supposed to be contemporaneous. There's supposed to be a review of the document at issue and not just a three-second review. And then the second element of the business records exception is that the record was kept in the course of a regularly conducted activity of a business, organization, occupation, or whether or not for profit. In other words, you can't just be creating a bunch of records. So a business record except document, because then so supposedly so Charles, can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, because uh, for some reason you're breaking up all of a sudden, so we're only getting about every fourth word. Oh, okay, is that any, is that any better? Uh, for, yeah, for whatever reason, we're getting a little bit of a, uh, a cutting in and out for some reason. Uh, maybe maybe, uh, maybe I'll just jump in here then if, okay. I, if I can while you're... Yeah, I'll uh, keep that in mind. Um, well, it, this is a great topic, and I'll tell you, the more I start digging into this, um, uh, there's really a good course of action, I think, now uh, more than ever to attack the business record exception to the hearsay rule in court. And, and I think it's really subject to attack um, simply because technology really has outpaced the law in this area. And, and let's just kind of keep that in the context of uh, foreclosures and the parties who are coming in seeking to uh, foreclose on these loans that were still in the uh, originated during that big run up to the crash uh, because 
<clears throat> the data and the originators and the, and the information that was produced back in that in that time um, is clearly uh, problematic. Um, it's all defective. And it's simply garbage. And and a lot of research has been done on this data through investor lawsuits, uh, through white papers that have been written, uh, abstracts. People have gone in to dissect this whole financial crisis, and um, it's it's clear cut that that the the data uh, coming from these collateral files and these loan files from that time period are just it's just nothing but garbage. So if you had garbage going in. Uh, what do you expect to come out the other side? It's going to be garbage. So, uh, so what's really interesting now, and I think that this, and the reason why this records exception needs to be uh, attacked, and there's a lot of evidence to now attack these witnesses, is because all of this is being, uh, the data is all being sold, manipulated, um, consolidated uh, to all kinds of third-party vendors out there. So just like you have all the third-party document fabrication mills that exist to go out and trump up uh, whatever documents are needed for foreclosures or for the land records, um, the same thing is applying here to the data. In fact, uh, the investors are going out and they're hiring. There's all kinds of firms now that are all over the place that uh, specialize in uh, doing data analytics, and they take this uh, these data tapes and they uh, uh, basically report back to the investors of, of what these tapes entail and where there's potential pitfalls and and weaknesses and uh, uh, the risk factors or whatever to the to the loans when they were originated and all this sort of thing. And so when these investors uh, still go ahead, knowing that these loans and much of the data is defective. They still go ahead and purchase, and then they hire some uh, servicing entity to claim that they're servicing these loans to go forth and um, do what they do, and especially as, as witnesses. Um, so, what's kind of you know rich here is that uh, for years uh, I've used databases myself, and I've used like the Bloomberg Terminal originally, and um, MBS Data, ABS Net, these services providers of these MBS mortgage-backed securities data that comes from the uh, trust administrators of, of the trust and these remittance reports to the investors, and I've relied on this data, and I've used that in uh, uh, some of my reports and testimony in, in cases. And the opposition, you know, I've met resistance along the way from the opposition saying, well, that's third-party sourced information. That's hearsay, Your Honor. You can't, you know, he can't speak to that data that's coming from the sources uh, uh, that, you know, it's, it's third-party information. Well, this is the exact same thing that uh, these parties are doing right now. They're going out and they're gathering up this uh, data from third-party sources, and these third-party sources often are uh, consulting and providing uh, oversight to what's called the old, you know, this boarding process that we hear about, right? And what you're what you're going to find out when you really dig under the hood here and you start looking at what's being bought and sold and traded in, in record speed time is that there's a separation here that you have to remember. There's a separation of the loan-level data, and there's a separation of the actual collateral files, meaning if there were to be any original documents from those uh, original collateral files, and many of those are kept in imaged um, 
uh, databases as well. It's all in electronic format. But these are kind of these are two separate areas. The, the low-level data on the collateral files, when these auditors go in, the parties who are, are analyzing this data for um, the ratings agencies and all this stuff to re-securitize and resell these debts, they're, they're saying that, okay, not only is there a problem with the original data because a lot of the original entities that originated these are no longer in business, they don't exist anymore, they never had proper technology back in that time so that when the documents were eventually scanned in, uh, every there's problems coming from just the quality of the images of the scans uh, that the new technology can't read those scans. It can't read the information in the, in, in the stuff. And so you're, you're getting these reports back that are, you know, 80, 90 percent defects and, and saying that this stuff is just literally garbage. And um, and so the difference between the, the two things is, one, the low-level data, when the servicers come in and, and they say this boarding process, now, Typically, the boarding process, they've got to prove that the data is accurate, reliable, and trustworthy at the, you know, at the time that they boarded it. And they're saying that from the prior servicers, because that's typically the story, is that they got this information in a servicing transfer from a prior servicer. A lot of that can now be attacked because what's happening is the servicers, the prior servicers, there's such a disconnect. Like in the chain of title, there's a disconnect even between the, the servicers and how they're coming upon this information because the servicers are the ones who are outsourcing all of these third-party data providers to do the auditing and whatnot. And the data, again, and Neil's uh, talked about this being one giant central repository, typically Black Knight, that has and holds, you know, millions of loan files and, and data and whatnot that everybody's just kind of tapping into, like uh, uh, pecking away at, like, you know, seagulls on the, uh, on the on crab shells on the beach, right? So the data, um, what you want to look at in those collateral files is, and, and, and when you then get into, so when I'm investigating a party who comes in to foreclose and we get into demanding documents to show how they purchase this particular loan or whatnot, they usually give a lot of pushback, but if they provide the mortgage loan sale and purchase agreements, it's very clear what's going on in those those agreements. And here's how they're gaming the system. Those those mortgage loan purchase and sale agreements, they say right in there that you are not, you're just purchasing data. And they're saying that uh, what was customary in the business is that the original documents were destroyed and you're buying copies of the notes. And, and, and they go a step further here to basically uh, uh, shirk the law and the rule of law by saying to the purchaser, uh, you can take these image copies and walk into court and call it original as evidence in court. And that's good. That's you can call it evidence. And so, what I have said before is they're using that language so that whatever service or witnesses take witness takes a stand, he's going to look at that screen and say, "We're holding the original note." Well, how do you know? Well, I'm just looking at my business records. Okay, so, so. You know, as I was saying a minute ago, the systems that I use, there's no difference. I could simply download this information, and I should, I can walk into court and say that these loan records, they're part of my business records, you know, <laughs> and part of the uh, the analytics and the investigative work I do. That these are these are business records, right? I mean, it's a, it's the same uh, uh, argument that can be uh, applied. So, um, 
But anyhow, what you'll also see in these mortgage loan purchase agreements is they're talking about the sale of data, but then they say that there's going to be a delivery of, of the collateral files, which are different, and those will occur at a different date and time, and those collateral files are going to be sent to a custodian. All right. So one thing to keep in mind out there, and, and boy, I could go off a lot on this subject. It's really an interesting topic. You'll never again see a custodian ever provide testimony uh, as to the original note, to the custodial history of the original collateral files or anything, because that went a different direction. That goes to custodians. All you're going to get is that servicer witness. And, uh, and again, I think it's going to be very simple to attack that witness based on the, the data, where they got it from, and to talk again about this boarding process, because that boarding process uh, is, is critical, because not only do they have a, a, a failure of a chain of title to a servicing record back to origination, but you're going to find that uh, the buyers, the depositors, the parties uh, dealing in these debts um, are, are basically um, – uh, purchasing and moving this data around through all kinds of third-party sources. And so the, he the levels of hearsay are, are just astounding. And, and there's no personal knowledge that they could ever attest to with any of this stuff that was garbage uh, to begin with. And, and one last uh, point that I want to make is uh, this isn't just my saying this. I've referenced an abstract that was um, written in 2012, and it really did a deep dive analysis of the mortgage-backed securities data problems and the issues uh, linked to that. And it was a, uh, a abstract titled "U.S. Mortgage or U.S. Residential Mortgage Transfer Systems: A Data Management Crisis." It was written by. Uh, uh, author John Hunt and some others back in 2012. And I've referenced this uh, many times because they say uh, right in the, at the end of their entire investigation of the data that we conclude that despite the size and importance of the mortgage market in the overall U.S. economy, current data management practices make it difficult or impossible for borrowers, lenders, investors, and government regulators to perform the oversight and analysis functions necessary to maintain an orderly market. And they talk about the origination data, and they say nearly always the loan IDs are changed as the loans travel through the mortgage supply chain, making it all but impossible to track a unique loan through the supply chain from its originators via its servicers to the securitized pools. So really what you have here is they're saying, that unlike you know when you have a stock certificate and a QCIP number uh, that can always be traced to a particular asset, these mortgage loans they manipulated the data. It's been manipulated. They changed the numbers, and all you're seeing is some identifiers that that looks like a loan, a loan amount, a date of origination. It has all this stuff, a zip code, but there's nothing really. Uh, specific oftentimes to identify anybody's particular loan, especially when those numbers have been manipulated and, cha and changed through the, through the chain of title. So um, they've admitted back then that it was it, the, 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 the data was garbage, and, uh, and now uh, with technology uh, that's at going at warp speed, this whole record exception thing, um, it's just ripe to be attacked. Charles? Uh, very good. And I think this is a very good example of contrived complexity. And there's of layers to everything that 
Bill was talking about. It does a lot to unpack. I think a lot of seemingly complex systems, once you unpack it, then you can see the moving parts and you can figure out how to it then and, and the dissect seems readily available. That uh, the lenders use the system to actually uh, is something that, as listeners to this show know, it's ongoing, it's often comprehensible, and uh, it's something that Bill, Neil, Neil, and I will continue to do everything we can to expose. And thank you again, Bill, for being with me on today's show. And Neil will be back next week. Always a pleasure. Thanks again, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954 451 1230 or send an email to N-E-I-L-F-G-A-R-F-I-E-L-D at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.